Hello everyone, you look lovely and tired, which is wonderful. Hopefully we'll get you jumping up and about at some point to wake you up, especially you, Rupert, Daniel, you just look horribly disappointed <laughs> to be alive. Um, that's not true. Um, decisions, decisions, decisions. Do I get dressed or stay in my pajamas? Lemon drizzle or brownies downstairs? Do I go to Mark and Samuel's seminar tomorrow? Or do I go to Aaron and Scott's seminar? That is a big decision. Um, uh, no, no, of course not. These are, these are lovely things that we get to decide, and, and slightly trivial, some of them. But um, either now or in the near future, you will be faced with significantly bigger decisions to make. Um, just let me take you back to 2019 for just a moment. I just got engaged. Um, I had a very lovely job that I really enjoyed, um, which made a lot of money. We had looked at our mortgage. Uh, we made the application for our mortgage. And we were thinking, okay, the next wee while of life is planned out. And it feels pretty good. It feels pretty comfortable. Uh, and a couple of decisions needed to be made once Hillary got into med school at St. Andrews. The question was, well, what do I do? Um, I, I love my soon-to-be wife, and I would very much like to be in the same place. Um, I don't necessarily want for her to have to reject this wonderful opportunity at St. Andrew's Uni. Big decisions need to be made, including an uh, incredible shift in, in my own life and training now for pastoral ministry, which three and a half years ago, actually four and a half years ago when that decision was made, I, I wouldn't have told you that I would be standing here leading a seminar along with Kirsty um, on um, guidance. That sounded like I wouldn't do it with Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> I never imagined that I'd be doing this, period. But it's amazing looking back on some of those decisions, uh, some of the things that I thought were helpful things that I was using in order to make decisions. Some of the unhelpful language we use sometimes in Christianese in order to ascertain what God's will is. And some of the real wisdom, the real biblical truth that was actually incredibly helpful that in hindsight I can look back on and thank God immensely for and all that he's been doing. Uh, some of the big decisions that you'll have to make in the next few while include the things that, like I just mentioned, work. Which job should you do? Should you become a blacksmith instead of being crippled by all the choice, um, Millie? Um, relationships. Should I go out with this guy or girl? Should I marry them? Should I get married at all? Uh, church. Should I join this church? Where should I go next to church when I leave St. Andrews? Uh, money. How should I spend my money? Um, Christian service. What areas of ministry should I be involved in? Should I do full-time Christian ministry? Decisions, decisions, decisions. If God has a, a wonderful plan for my life, which I believe he does for all of us, then why doesn't he just tell me what it is? How, how can I discover what it is? How do I go about making daily decision, decisions? The, the little ones uh, and the big ones. These decisions can be a, a source of anxiety. We considered that a, a bit yesterday. Um, we thought yesterday about good and bad fear in light of the future. Uh, and such fear has caused even very rational and mature Christians to do weird things in order to ascertain what, what God's will for their life is. And maybe Kirsty's going to help us out with that a little bit later. We, we need guidance 
about guidance. So before I go any further and explain our, our, even our plan for this session, let me reassure you with this. Guidance is a promise as far as the Bible is concerned. You are promised guidance. The good news is that God is a guiding God. Let me read to you Psalm 23. Corey's reading it every day for a year and meditating on it deeply. Maybe you guys can ask him some questions about verses two and three. Um, Classic Psalm, probably the most famous of them all. He leads me beside, and that, that word in, I've got the ESV, the NIV, I think says guides. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads or guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God does have a plan. He has a plan for our lives and he wants to communicate it to us. And he does it through scripture, through the Bible. And so our goal for this session is to help equip one another for a lifetime of making godly and wise decisions, we hope. And firstly, we'll consider the Bible's clear answer to the questions, what is God's plan? What is his will? What is his will for the universe? What is his will for my life? And then secondly, we'll consider the Bible's principles and and general wisdom for making decisions. Because on some things, the Bible will be absolutely clear. However, it doesn't give the precise course of action we must take every single time. That said, it gives us everything we need to make every and any decision. So, you've got your handouts in front of you. I think we're in point one now, which is God's will. And the will of God is one of the most confusing phrases in the Christian vocabulary. Uh, Maybe you've heard this kind of language. Sometimes we speak of all things happening according to God's will. Uh, Other times we talk about being obedient and doing God's will. Uh, And still other times we talk about finding the, the will of God. Um, theologians are, are kind of in agreement on this. Um, they often speak about God having two wills. You'll see that in the, the table that I've put in the, in the handout for you. God's sovereign or decretive or hidden will, uh, as well as his moral or preceptive or revealed will. Uh, we're going we're gonna to unpack these as we go along. Let me just explain them in, 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 in one sentence, because I think what Corey said yesterday was really, really helpful. The message of the Bible is is simple in a way, but it is so profound that we will never understand all its depths. And I think this is certainly one of these occasions in the Bible where it applies. God has a sovereign will. He he has a, a secret plan for everything that happens in the universe that we aren't privy to. We're going to read that in Deuteronomy 29 in just a second. But God also has a, a moral will. The scriptures reveal all of the moral will of God. He tells us how we ought to live. He tells us what he wants from us, what we ought to do and what we ought not to do, to live lives that are pleasing to him. And if we're Christians here today, I hope that that is our hope, that we want to live lives that are pleasing to God. So maybe you're confused because you're looking at that table and I just used 10 words to describe things that theologians have been trying to describe for centuries. But 
Does God know what he wants or not? What's this whole thing with the two wills? Um, I think when we consider the the cross, um, we can distinguish between these two wills of God as we find them in the Bible. And I think it's really helpful. And maybe you'll see where, where we're coming at it with this. Let me throw this question at you. Did God want his one and only beloved son to be killed unjustly or not? Just mull that in your heads for a second. You don't need to to shout it out. Did God want his one and only beloved son, loved into eternity past, to be killed unjustly or not? On the one hand, God does not love murder. Clearly, he tells us, he does not love murder. He tells us not to murder. He tells those in authority to punish those who do evil and, and reward those who do, who do good. Nowhere in the Bible does he tell them to unjustly execute those who have done nothing wrong, who have only done good in their lives, in fact. Clearly, God hates the fact that humanity killed his son for no reason. The, the fact that Jesus even has to pray for God's forgiveness, you know, ask for, for the people that are murdering him, reveals that they are doing something that is displeasing to God, right? Father, forgive them, Jesus says. But on the other hand, Peter can say of Herod in, in Acts chapter 4, He speaks of Herod, he speaks of Pilate, and the conspiracy to kill Jesus, all those amazing chapters that we read of at the end of Mark, if you were doing the evening service with us um, last semester. Peter says of that, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The, the, The conspiracy to kill Jesus, and specifically talking about Herod and Pilate, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So on the one hand, God hated it. And on the other hand, God willed it in advance. How do you hold those things together? He hated and both planned the death of his son. Does God love murder? No. This is his moral will. Do not kill. Did he plan for his son to be murdered? Yes, that's his sovereign or hidden will. The Bible affirms both simultaneously. And so let's, let's consider them both in turn. Why don't we? So let's start with that first one. God's, <clears throat> his sovereign will, excuse me, his will for the universe. Um, sometimes the Bible speaks of, of God's will in terms of his sovereign overall plan for the whole universe. And we've kind of been talking about that in our talks with Corey, which has been super helpful. Um, Can you please open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Really important passage that Corey made reference to in a very similar context. It's amazing um, how much overlap there is. It's a wonderful thing. Um, Christy and I were actually praising God this morning for all the overlap that there has been in some of the stuff we've been doing. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, um, we're told this about um, God's overall plan for all of um, heaven and earth. 
uh, interestingly enough. Uh, so from verse 9, God made known to us the mystery of his will, a little bit further on, to bring all things, heaven and earth, under one head, even Christ. This is the, the big picture plan of what God is doing in the universe. This is God's will. To bring everything under the governance of Jesus. To bring everything under the good and loving rule of his son. However, though that that is clear, what uh, God says is his overall plan for the whole universe, there's a lot that he hasn't told us. Let me just read Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. You can flick to it if you want. But it says this, The secret things belong to our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow the words of this law. There there are things that God hasn't told us, and there are things that God has told us. And we need to be content with the things he has told us, because if we needed to know any of the things he didn't, he, he would have told us. So let me just give you a couple of examples. And maybe this has come up even in the life group stuff that we've been doing. If you were here last year and you were doing Romans, this will certainly have come up. We don't know who will be saved or why. Something that the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time speaking about. We, we don't know why God works in the way he does. Why he set up things in the way he has. Um, we don't know why. Why he allows certain things to happen. Um, if you were here even a couple Years before that, we, we had our MYC on, on Habakkuk. How long, O oh Lord, why this suffering, says the prophet. Great book to try and answer that question. It won't give you the answer, but it will give you God's beautiful love and comfort to the prophet and the people. We don't know how individual events in history fit into his plan. There are things we don't know or, or simply don't understand, But we trust him in the things he hasn't revealed and submit to him in the things that he has. I find that a really helpful thing to think about. We trust God in the things he hasn't revealed, but submit to him in the things that he has. It's very broad brushstrokes. We can't spend all um, day on it. But let me me apply this for us, because I think this actually really matters at a very a heart practical level out off the back of ephesians 1 we praise god because in part he has chosen to reveal his will to us uh, <laughs> just thinking about myself made from dirt <laughs> um, that god has chosen to reveal his will to me is amazing that he makes me privy, that he includes me in uh, understanding a bit of the plan. Uh, The biggest thing that God is doing in the universe, he has revealed to us in Ephesians 1. That's huge. That should be a source of praise for us. God has included us in his plan. He's revealed it to us, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, But similarly, as I apply this to my own heart, I, 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 I think we need to be humble 
We, we are not God. And we won't understand everything. That can be really painful sometimes. Not understanding everything. We'll never understand everything. And so the, the, the humility of remembering that I am not God. And that God is so much bigger. And that yet he still loves me and includes me in so much. And I guess, um, as, as we think about decisions again, um, we should seek to understand God's will in every little area of life, maybe even the things you guys have written down on your bits of paper, in light of God's big picture. Uh, when I consider God's big picture plan from Ephesians 1, to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus, Everyone submitting to Jesus, obeying him, enjoying his blessings. When I consider God's big picture plan, and then I come to a, a smaller issue, like God's will for my career or for my relationship status, I should be thinking from the outset that God wants the whole universe to be brought under the rule and headship of Jesus. And so it follows that he wants my career to be brought under the rule and headship of Jesus, right? It follows that God wants to bring my relationship under the rule and headship of Christ. And God has said a lot of things about those two things, funnily enough. Um, we'll, we'll consider that a little bit later. So I think of every little issue in light of the big thing that God is doing in the world. Uh, that, that, that's his will for all of the universe. But, but let's, let's, let's zoom in. Let, let's double tap and get to God's will for our, our own lives. Uh, and then we'll, we're just going to summarize it in terms of two, two big things that the Bible is incredibly clear about. Uh, godliness and sharing the gospel. Two Gs. There you go. Isn't that wonderful? So what is God's will for my life? Because it's at this point that many Christians become anxious. You know, what if I miss God's will for my life? What if I make the wrong career decision? What if I marry the wrong person? Uh, the, the traditional and I, and I think unhelpful, and I'll, I'll try and explain why in a second, view of, of God's guidance is essentially that, that God has a, a specific ideal blueprint for every person's life which you may or may not discern and follow. Uh, you may deviate from and therefore miss God's ideal plan for your life. And if that happens, of course, then God has another plan waiting in the wings, but it's not the first choice. And therefore, it's not as fruitful or fulfilling. For the record, God does have a plan for you. Uh, we'll come into some of that in just a second. But, but this is a, a, an, a, an unhelpful view of God's will because this, this kind of individual will of God. You remember the, the table, it's got two kind of God's, God's sovereign will, God's moral will. Some people like to add a third box to the table, God's individual will, the perfect blueprint of what he's got for you. And I really need to find it. Um, it's unhelpful because nowhere in the Bible does it say that you are encouraged to go and find your individual, individual will for every little detail. Nowhere in scripture does it say that that should be a pursuit of ours. You can waste a, a great deal of time 
and energy searching for, for something that doesn't exist, you can cause yourself a great deal of pain. When the Bible at no point says, hey, I, you sitting at NYC here, I want you to spend a great deal amount of time praying for the, the, the voice to tell you exactly what you need to do at exactly every single point in time. Sometimes the, the, the Bible speaks of God's will as his desire to, 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 for people to live in a certain way. Uh, and I think that's more helpful. Let's actually see what the Bible says about what God wants for us. And this is what we mean by, by God's moral will, that, that second table or that second uh, column in the table. And the Bible couldn't be clearer on this one. This is one of my favorite verses because I love how succinct it is. If, if we've ever gone out for a coffee and this conversation has come up, I have inevitably uh, brought this, this passage up um, with you. Uh, and so forgive me if I'm re- repeating myself. But could you open up your Bibles to, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? For the record, just read 1 Thessalonians. What an incredible book. Um, Wednesday life groups were doing it. Um, isn't that, that right, <coughs> Catherine, Kirsty? You guys just did 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I was reading it again this morning in just my quiet time. Incredible stuff. Um, especially chapter 4, when it talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us. And this is what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, and it couldn't be wonderfully clearer than this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be utterly dedicated to him and his purposes and his promises and his commands. If you came looking for a short and sweet answer, the kind of thing that you put in your you know, um, handout and you just write it down and put it in a box and underline it and highlight it. What is God's will for my life? Well, now you know it. God's will is that you should be sanctified. Now, what does that mean? Uh, let's dig into that. If you're a Christian, you are saved by grace, not by trying hard or doing well or being nice or being better. You trust in Jesus. Uh, however, you were saved from sin, but you were also saved for something. You were saved so that you will be conformed into the image of God's Son. That's Romans 8, 29. Um, you were saved so that you could grow to be more and more like Jesus. In other words, to be like Jesus, to be godly. Sanctification means growing in godliness. It's amazing how many times we can confuse ourselves with some of the language that the Bible uses when it actually is actually using it interchangeably. When it talks about holiness and godliness and growing in Christ-likeness, we're talking about the same things. So sanctification means growing in, in godliness, living for righteousness and dying to sin more and more. You'll see that all across the, 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 the New Testament. Um, I was, <laughs> actually this morning, I was recording a sermon for a preaching conference I'm doing. And literally the passage I was looking at was 1 Peter um, chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, and it says, this is what it looks like to be a Christian in the world. Abstain from sin and the, 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 the lustful passions of your heart, and instead live honorable lives in the negative and in the positive. 
So what does it look like to, to be sanctified, to be holy? Live to righteousness, die to sin more and more. Uh, it's not something we do on our own. God sanctifies us by his spirit. And remember the role of the spirit in creation? We were looking at that, I think, on day one uh, with Corey, to perfect and to arrange. It's the same here in our lives. God's gift to you is his spirit so that you can grow in godliness. Sanctification is something that God is at work in you to achieve. But that said, sanctification is also something that we are invited and actually commanded to pursue. You know, in that passage in 1 Thessalonians, if you've still got it open in front of you, you will see, and if you read the the, the verses that precede it in chapters 3 and 4, there's so much about what God has done for you as a Christian. Paul's brilliant in the way he writes his letters. He usually begins with the theology. Here's all the truths about you. And in light of that, live this way. Respond in this way. But after he tells them, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, he immediately goes into application and example and practical stuff. Abstain from sexual immorality. Do the work of fleeing sin. And in Thessalonica, there was a particular problem with sexual immorality, we think. But specifically, Paul tells them to do stuff. 2 Peter is one of my favorite books. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, the beginning of it. It's all about what God has done for you in terms of redeeming you, uniting you to Christ. I love the the verse in in, in verse um, verse 1 where it says, or verse 2, I should say, that you have a faith as precious as of the apostles, the ones who saw Jesus with their own eyes and touched him with their own hands. And then, after telling us all these glorious truths about who you are as a believer, the next thing that comes is, therefore, make every effort to supplement your faith with a list of seven Christ-like virtues. Uh, Yes, uh, sanctification is something that's happening in you as the Spirit works in you, but it's something that you must pursue also. And so, since we're on talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, let's talk about him. Um, There is a a couple of unhelpful views uh, about the the Holy Spirit. Uh, Maybe you've heard this, and and, uh, I think we need to be careful with with, with this language. Um, You know, the Spirit told me to do this. Or or maybe you've heard a a Christian pal saying that the the Spirit told me to do that. They told me to to date this person. Um, uh, we've all had friends, and Catherine is nodding along. Um, we've all had friends who have said things like, um, the Holy Spirit told me to break up with you. <laughs> uh, he didn't tell the other guy. Um, uh, genuinely, uh, this is a little bit funny. My, my dad's a minister as well. Um, I'm not a minister. Uh, my dad's a minister, but um, he uh, asked a guy at church if he could pray. Um, just in, in like a prayer meeting. And the guy <laughs> said to him, oh, David, um, um, the Spirit is, is, is telling me uh, that I shouldn't pray tonight. And my dad, a little bit cheekily, said, that's really interesting. He's telling me that you should pray. <laughs> and and, and do, do you see how we can use this language unhelpfully, though? Uh, there's so many famous preacher's illustrations that I, we don't have time for me to go into, but we can have a laugh about them um, later. But there is language in the Bible of the Spirit leading. That, that is true. Um, when people use this phrase, they, they don't tend to mean, I think, what the Bible says. 
There, there's an excellent book, one of the best resources on this topic is a, a, a book um, by an American, uh, which is called the, the Will of God. And I can't remember his name at the moment. It's the big tome. It's like 450 pages on just this topic. And one of the things he does brilliantly is he does a survey of the entire Bible. And every verse that uses this kind of language about the Spirit leading someone to do something. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples so that we, we can actually work at this together. Um, Romans 8.14 says that for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Um, being led by the Spirit of God in this context is describing sanctification, describing um, adoption, being part of God's family. The leading is guiding into the moral will of God to do what's pleasing to him. Obedience enabled by the Spirit. Um, Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And this one, Paul's literally talking about the struggle, the pool of the flesh and your sinful desires and the pool of the Spirit that dwells within you. And the key to overcoming the desires of the flesh is to walk by the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit into immediately what comes after the, the, the gifts of the Spirit, being led to joy, peace, patience, love, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. The Spirit leading to godliness. Uh, let me, one more uh, brilliant one from John 16. The Spirit of truth, he will guide you into all the truth. And I don't think that needs much of an explanatory note. It's talking about Jesus' words. And words that we find in Scripture. Nowhere, um, and, and you know, we can chat about this um, later if you want, nowhere are we told or promised that God's Spirit will guide us to specific day-to-day -day decisions. What shoes you should wear, whether or not you should shower before sleeping, even though you just Kaylee dance for two hours. That is disgusting if you don't better. <laughs> What, what, what the New Testament and what the whole Bible does say is that the Spirit guides us to the truth, that the Spirit guides us to more godliness. It, it, it never says that it's used like a divining rod. Do you guys know what a divining rod is? Slightly mystic, weird thing. Find precious metals. It guides you. you see people on the beach and um, using it. No, nowhere is the Holy Spirit described in that kind of way. Um, and just... Um, just before I hand over to, to Kirsty, who's got some really, really, really helpful stuff for us to think about. Um, we need to remember that, that God has told us everything we could ever possibly need to live in this world. He has given us everything we possibly need in his word uh, to live a way that brings him glory and pleases him. Let me give you some examples of, of some of the ways that he actually tells us. Um, how you ought to be going about the, the life of pleasing him. Here are a few clear ones. Um, I googled it just for a bit of fun. There was literally hundreds of these kinds of commands where God tells us what he wants for your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Um, flee from sexual immorality. I guess repeated a lot in the New Testament. Um, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, be hospitable. Commanded to be hospitable. It's Godful for your life. Well, he commands you to be hospitable. That's kind of cool. Um, let, ah, this one really cut me deep a couple of um, weeks ago. I was reading Ephesians. Let there, it actually says not even a hint of immorality 
in your relationships with other Christians. Let there be no filthiness or coarse joking. I'm all too guilty of, of that language. I know God's will for my life. He tells me. He's given me commands. He's given me the entire scriptures filled with his moral will. Positives and negatives, the do's and the don'ts. And, in, and on these matters, God's will does not need to be debated. It just needs to be obeyed. Uh, most of the decisions we need to make this week, we know exactly what God wants us to do if we're completely honest. Uh, I think it's Mark Twain. People credit Mark Twain for saying this, but I'm sure you'll have heard some variation of this quote. My, my problem with the Bible is not the things I don't understand, but the things I do understand, the things I don't like that are in there. I, I think, uh, and feel free to push back on this um, later on with me, that we can spend so much time worrying about what we think might be God's will, this phone or that phone, this hoodie or that hoodie, uh, when actually I should spend more time worrying about the areas of my life in which I'm disobeying the clear commands of Scripture already. Uh, God's word does not need to be debated um, in those areas. It needs to be obeyed. So what is God's will for your life? Godliness. Um, it's a bunch of helpful quotes on this. Uh, the book, the Kevin DeYoung one, um, that we would um, encourage you to, to check out. It's a really great book, especially if you're crippled by indecision, um, as um, I sometimes can be. I, I found this incredibly helpful when I was um, uh, a little bit younger. Um, he says, God cares less about where you are and more about who you are. It's a really helpful way of saying exactly what we've been saying here. Um, he cares about your godliness. Um, Meister Eckhart was a cool German theologian in the 12th and 13th um, century. Uh, and he said exactly the same, that God is not so concerned about what you are doing, but who you are becoming. And then he actually adds this really cool thing that applies to work. Um, our works do not ennoble us. Um, we ennoble our works. I find that incredibly helpful as I think about, you know, when I was stacking shelves at Sainsbury's or when I was lawyering or now training for ministry. It's not where I am, whether it was Aberdeen in my nice semi-detached three bedroom or whether I'm looking for a flat in St. Andrews. You know, it's so expensive. <laughs> um, it's not about where I am, it's about who I am as far as the Bible is concerned. And if that's something that you remember and take away from this, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 tells you that. Um, we're going to do a really short exercise, okay? Everybody turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. So what I'm going to do, in your rows, you're going to read it together. Um, I'm simply just going to ask two questions. I'm going to give you, oh, I don't know, four minutes to read and discuss because time, in it. Um, so Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. How would you summarize the mission, 
priority of Jesus in these verses. Fun fact, the first time Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel, here are the two first things he says. Uh, how would you summarize his mission priority? If you're one of the first years, you've got all the answers because you've been doing it. If you're a second year, if you're a second year, you did Mark with me last year, so of course you know. Um, Jesus' mission and priorities, uh, and what are his followers called to do in these verses? Um, four minutes. Is that clear? Um, um, just um, shout some things out. Um, Jesus' mission, priority in these verses. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, absolutely. Okay. Really helpful. Thank you, Sam. Anything else? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, absolutely. Yes. I think the, the follow me, as Mark's going to develop that um, for the rest of, of his gospel, is incredibly similar language to everything we've been talking about already in terms of God's will for your life is godliness. Uh, Mark frames it in terms of discipleship. And that's the kind of language he loves, but it's the same. It's growing as followers of Jesus, following the king um, and being more like him. I've got amazing teaching after chapter nine as well. It's pretty cool. Um, anything else? What is he? Sorry. No, no, go for it. Oh, there's almost like a sense of urgency. Um, okay. Come on, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And they follow. I love that. Um, what does he tell the two bros? Fishers of men, absolutely. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we should pay attention to whatever the, the, the authors of the Gospels have decided to record as the first things that Jesus says. That's kind of helpful tool. Maybe in Dig Deeper, that's there. I don't know. Uh, I have read it, but it was a long time ago. Um, so in, 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 in Mark uh, 1, 14 to 20, we've got that repent, turn around from the way you're going and head in a different direction. Day by day, following Jesus, guided by his spirit to, to be more like him. You know, what, what would most please Jesus? Godliness. Uh, and what would Jesus want? Godliness. Follow me. Uh, it's that right there at the, at the beginning in his priorities. But then he talks about fishing. And this is massive in, in the New Testament. Um, he calls these uh, guys to be fishers of men. And so just let, me just let me just frame it in this way. If Jesus is king, as Mark is going to make the case, and if he's offering the great blessings of belonging to his kingdom, kingdom was mentioned in, that, in those verses that you were reading, uh, the blessings including belonging and relationship. Uh, and if indeed Mark is right, later on as he goes to say that there's going to be a great division at the end of all time, then surely the gospeling it is a vital priority to tell others about the king. And so you could summarize this, this big picture, general word of scripture. What is it that God wants me to do? More godliness and more gospel. That is God's will for my life. More godliness of my own um, and in helping others in the church to be more godly. And more gospel sharing of my own and helping others in the church to speak to their friends about Jesus. So everything I'm doing, what, is, what, what does God want me to do? More godliness and more gospel sharing. So I, I don't want to steal um, Kirsty's um, material and thunder, but like, that's what we apply to the little decisions. More gospel, more godliness. Can that happen the place I'm going to work at? 
Can that happen if I take this job? Because there's no really good churches. Can it happen if indeed the reason, the only reason I'm buying this hoodie is because I just want to compete with Theo's um, style, you know? Is that my main motivation? Theo is dead. He did not hear any of that. But, but if my motivation is more godliness and more gospel, I'm applying that to every single one of the little decisions as well. So what should we do, though, when I'm not sure how these general words of Scripture apply to any particular situation? And um, that's what Kirsty's going to help us with. Um. Lovely. Okay. Um, gang, I think that was a bit lovely. Well done, gang. Um, I think that was a wise choice that we just made. Um, so, back in the game, uh, we're on the second part of the handout. Um, looking at how do we actually go about making these wise decisions. So, approximately, um, according to people who've spent too many hours working out these things, we make over 35,000 decisions a day. So we're obviously not saying that we need to pray about every single one of those decisions. Um, I think that would probably be impossible. Um, but much of the Bible talks instead of this language. <laughs> What's going on that road? But, uh, the Bible talks very much more in the language of walking. So walking in wisdom, walking as God's redeemed people with transformed minds. And it is as we grow in our maturity as Christians um, that we will grow in our godliness, like John's been sharing with us. And we will grow in our evangelism and we will grow in our, um, basically, our sanctified common sense, our ability to walk in wisdom, to make wise and godly decisions. And that is a wonderful thing. So some of the decisions we make are pretty inconsequential, aren't they? To porridge or not to porridge doesn't really matter, um, though it's wonderful. But obviously there are some decisions that do matter a little bit more and we should probably therefore spend a little bit more time thinking about them and thinking about how we go about making them. And wonderfully, God doesn't leave us on our own in that. Um, But he's given us some really essential tools which are great. And so we're going to look at a few of those together before we give it a go ourselves. So the first one that I put down on the sheet uh, is the obvious one. It's the one that we've already spent lots of time in. Um, and we'll just spend a little bit more time on now, which is God's word in scripture. Um, Samuel, can you read us the verse in the sheet, please? Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Thank you. <coughs> there is a song. I like the singing now in the corner. Um, but as Christians, we want to please God, don't we? And so if we want to live as God's people, pleasing to him then it follows that we need to know what actually does please God. And wonderfully, he tells us in his word. And his word in the Bible is our supreme authority in all of our decision-makings, because it is the voice of our Father. And we've heard a week, haven't we, that our maker is the one who made us, and therefore he knows why he made us, and he tells us wonderfully why he made us, and he tells us how it is best for us to live. Um, for his glory and for our own flourishing and therefore we want to listen to him and it is in his word that we see Jesus who was the perfect human being and who gives us an example that we are called to imitate as we always want to be looking at our bible and John's already reminded us just then that the spirit uses the scriptures to reveal to us the moral will of God and 
as we've said, sometimes that means that it's just going to be an obedience thing. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is this sinful? And if the answer is yes, then we have to flee. So getting drunk with our colleagues or taking up shoplifting is actually never going to be right. Even if we pray about it and we feel otherwise, even if our Christian mate says to us, that's really understandable. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah, because then you could do that and then that and that. No, no, no. If the Bible says no, it's a no. Um, That is just a really helpful place for us to start. But then again, there are lots of things on there, as we've already said, where it's not an obedience thing, where it's actually a little bit more complex. It's a neutral thing. So let's take marriage as an example. The Bible sets up some really kind of clear guidelines, doesn't it? So, well, not guidelines, it's obedience. Um, So if we're to get married, it is to be someone of the opposite sex who isn't already married. If we're a Christian, we are to marry another Christian. So that narrows the field, but actually there's still quite a lot of choice. So then we go... (laughs) It's true! I don't know why someone's laughing. Amen, it's true. Um... But the question is, so how do we make... It's hard to bring it back for that. How do we make those decisions? <laughs> okay, we're just going to have a giggle pause. There we go. We're all back. Okay, so how do we decide when it's in one of those situations where it's a little bit more neutral and where there genuinely is choice? So the basic assumption in the Bible is not actually that we need to discover God's will, but it's that we need to make decisions. And so you could look up Afterwards, I'd advise you looking up Acts 15. This is a wonderful example of that. The apostles have a really massively important decision to make in the days of the early church um, surrounding circumcision and the inclusion of Gentiles and what that's going to look like. And actually, God doesn't give them a message across the sky, much as we might expect him to. Instead, he gives them a thorough dose of sanctified common sense. They discuss it together. They come to a compromised conclusion. And that is the wisdom that God has given them. And I just think that's a really comforting example that even in the Bible we see people working out the real nitty-gritty of what does it look like to live individually and in community in service of God. And so that is a wonderful encouragement. Um, do turn it up if you want to. So, um, mm-hmm. when it comes to making those choices that are mutual, I think one of those phrases that is really helpful is just remembering again um, that God doesn't give us a map for our lives, but he does give us a compass, and that compass is exactly what John has already told us. It is our sanctification. So we don't have a map, but we do have a compass. And so there are some wonderful implications from this, because if um, I find myself agonising Um, for weeks and weeks and weeks sleeplessly over making a decision it might potentially suggest that actually my priorities are risky and I need to think about um, what matters more to God because I think we tend to think that what matters most to God is what matters most to us so where I live, what job I do, who I marry what house I buy but actually God could have told us all of those things but there is a reason that that verse is not in the Bible that says Samuel Hignett, buy this house. There is a reason that God hasn't put that in, and that is because God cares way more about who we are than where we are. And so actually the questions we want to be asking ourselves is not what module do I study, but how am I going to conduct myself as I study that module? It's not where do I work as much as It is, how am I going to glorify God and work heartily for him in that work? 
God gives us all that we need to make wise decisions and to live according to his will. And so we need to thank him for that. And there are um, three implications I found really exciting from this truth. Um, the first one is that challenge. Um, it's definitely been a challenge to me, and I suspect it's a challenge to lots of us. Um, John even alludes to it, so I guess it's a challenge to John as well. Um, do we spend more time and energy trying to make a decision and making up our minds about what we should do than we do about cultivating a character after God's own heart? Where do we invest our time and our energy and our efforts? Is it in trying to make the decision or is it in cultivating that godly character? But it's also hugely, hugely freeing, isn't it? That's our second one. Um, it is a massively freeing truth for those of us who are crippled by indecision um, or overthinking. Actually, it is such a wonderful thing that God sometimes simply says, there's two good choices, pick one. It's what Heidi said yesterday, isn't it? Don't over-spiritualise every single decision. If they're both good, then pick one and do it for the glory of God. That is just great news. Um, it's one of the reasons, actually, that I love some of the commands that we get in the Bible. So, potentially one of the most famously controversial commands in the Bible, you'll get in Colossians 3. So it says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. And one of the things that amazes me about that verse is the freedom. God doesn't say, submit to your husbands. And here are the 267 ways that submission is going to look like in 2023. He says, submit to your husbands. He gives us the principle. Or, um, love your wives. Gives the principle. And then he says, now go work it out. Use your wisdom. Use your sanctified consent. Use the rest of my word. Work it out. That is the freedom because God hasn't made us to be robots. He's made us to be redeemed people who live for his glory and to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And that is great news. The final um, implication, I think, from this wonderful truth that God's given us his word and it's all that we need um, is that we want to be steeping in that truth. So bear with this image. Like a tea bag in a cup of tea, the longer you leave it, the stronger it brews. It's true. That is true. We're all with me. <laughs> um, actually, we want to be those who feast upon God's word, who steep ourselves in it, who absorb it, because it's the more that we sit in God's word and allow it to captivate our hearts and our minds and our wills, the more we will be living in a way that pleases the Lord, and the more our wills will be shaped to be the same as his will, for godliness and for more gospel. So, we've got those situations, haven't we, that we said, where there's a multiplicity of options. We're not really sure which ones to pick. They all seem pretty good. What do we do then? Okay, well, using the Bible, we can work out some of God's priorities, and that's where I want you guys to have a go. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to look at um, the end of 1 Corinthians 10, so verses 23 to 33. And just in those small groups, I want you to try and use this passage that is being written to a local Corinthian church with a very specific context, talking about food and um, idol worship, and work out what are the principles um, that the Corinthians are to follow. So what are they to seek? That language of seeking is really helpful. Um, what are the governing guides for them as they make those decisions? 
I'm going to give you about four minutes again. It is a passage that initially when we read it can feel quite unfamiliar, can't it? Because it's all about um, this big question, do we eat food sacrificed to idols? Um, which is not something that tends to be discussed much in Scotland. Um, as a side note, in a different church I worked in, actually this was a real prime issue with all of their students. Um, so like, there are lots of references around the world where this will be the question that they're asking. Um, but there are principles from it which are really, really key. And when I was a student, I um, was taught this passage and using the three Gs test. There's a lot of Gs in today's talk. The three Gs test. And actually, I found it massively helpful to hold on to. Um, and I wonder if this is um, what you guys unearth as well. So firstly, the glory of God. So we saw that in verse 31, don't we? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So that first principle being like, can I do this to the glory of God? Can I watch that film to the glory of God? Can I hang out with those friends to the glory of God? Secondly, um, for my own growth, um, particularly like my own growth and godliness. Um, so verse 23 is really interesting. Um, not everything is beneficial. Um, so does this help us grow in our love for Jesus and our own godliness? Um, that is a really key question to ask. And then the third question that is helpful to ask is for <coughs> others' good. So that's both the good of church um, so Christian friends, but also the good of the unbeliever. And that comes up um, at least three times. So verse 24, verse 32, verse 33. Um, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of others, so that they may be saved. And so those three Gs are really helpful questions. Can I do this to the glory of God? Will this help me grow in godliness? And will it serve others well? Is this for their good? Um, and those principles can just be massively helpful applied in like every situation. Our second tool in the toolkit um, is prayer. Um, Becky, are you happy to read out the verse that I put down the sheet, please? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? That we can ask God, and he promises to give us Wisdom. Is that something that we want to ask God for? Is that something that we often ask God for? He is the giver of all good gifts, and one of those gifts is wisdom. And prayer is an expression, isn't it, upon our dependence upon God, our need for his wisdom and not our own. Um, and it, prayer is also a willingness to surrender to him and to obey him. And so it's a wonderful place to start. Jesus teaches us to pray, not my will, but yours. Your will be done. And that is why he teaches us to pray that, because he wants our will to be conformed to the likeness of God's will. Um, yeah, which is cool. And then our third one is wise counsel. Um, Amos, are you happy to read the verse I put down for you? Yeah, sure. Proverbs 13. Whoever walks with a wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Thank you so much. One of the greatest gifts in the Christian life is one another. Um, we're saved into community, and that is incredible news because we are surrounded by other people who share the same compass, that compass of our sanctification, who are going in the same direction and who have the same wisdom being given to them from the same God. And that is brilliant news, and we want to make the most of that. 
this, obviously, just to caveat this, this doesn't mean that we need to ask every single Christian we know about every single decision we make, nor does it actually mean that we necessarily take their advice. Um, one of the things that we often say is, when it's not an obedience issue, um, it, it's no one else's place to tell you what to do. They can't be like, this is what God has for you, if actually it's, it's not in the Bible. So do be wary of that. But it's really good to ask people's wisdom and their thoughts, um, particularly older Christians. It's the joy of interviewing Corey and Heidi and saying, what have you guys learned a few steps further down the road? And that is a precious thing. And so there's a couple of questions um, that I would love you guys to think about, just in your own heads, off the back of that. That question of how do we walk side by side with one another, encouraging one another, speaking words of truth with one another, sharing wisdom. Firstly, who are you listening to? Are they seeking God's will in your life, which is your sanctification? We will always find people who say what we want them to say. John and I can attest to that really easily, and lots of friends surrounding themselves with people who say what they want them to say. The question is, are we surrounding ourselves with people who say what God wants for us? And does it match the Bible? The second question I'd love us to think about is, what kind of friend are you? Are you a wise friend or are you a worldly friend in the advice that you give? And it's an incredible prayer because we know we'll get this wrong all of the time. But what a privilege that we can pray for wisdom, both for our lives, but also in the conversations that we have with other people. That is a fantastic aspiration to have. Um, and it's something that we'd love to encourage in all of us, that we long for that wisdom, that we can be the wise counsellors, that we can be the wise friends who are speaking God's word to one another, encouraging one another to grow in sanctification and godliness. On your sheet, I've wound down a few tools that um, we deliberately haven't mentioned, but perhaps you thought, oh yeah, obviously let's talk about this, or this is maybe the language the most commonly heard um, when it comes to wisdom. If you want more details on them, um, just do something. There's like a whole section on tools that often get used in like Christian circles, which are a little bit, a little bit unhelpful, ranging to very unhelpful. Um, but we thought maybe it was important just to like name them and just say a couple of things about <coughs> where they can be helpful and where actually they can be unwise. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard this before or not. People quite often talk about things like an open door. Um, if we're meaning opportunities, amen, that's a wonderful thing. So Paul in Colossians 4, he's in prison and he prays, um, he asks them actually to pray that God may open a door for his message that he might proclaim the good news of Jesus. That is a wonderful thing. So if by is there an open door, we're meaning can there be an opportunity to preach the gospel, then that is wonderful. If, however, you take it to mean that every single time you're given an opportunity, that is necessarily from God and therefore his will for your life, that then becomes a little bit riskier. Because... If we took a, like, a really obvious example, if you're offered a promotion, but it means you can't go to church on a Sunday, if you are absolutely convinced that God only ever works with open doors, you'll say that's an open door and you'll go through it. But actually, wisdom would say that's deeply unwise, even unbiblical. And then there are lots of tracks down there. So if you want to chat more about that later, do come and chat to us. But John and I um, have plenty of examples where people have used the language of open doors to mean that actually they are unthinkingly making really important decisions 
um, in a way that actually doesn't have very much reference to how can I live to please God. The fleece. This we might see a little bit less. This refers back to um, a guy in the Old Testament called Gideon um, who laid out a fleece to see God's will for his um, next step in his life. Um, Gideon is not being held out as a like great example of faith there. Um, you can listen. Did you preach that sermon? Some, okay, we just had that sermon. Um, it was very, very helpful. So you can go back into our judges' sermons to hear about it. Um, but often that test, you might have heard it look like, um, Lord, the next car that I see is the car that you want me to buy. And then you buy that car because it's the next car you see. And actually you can hear how easily it becomes us manipulating God's wills being basically what I want. Um, it's okay to want to buy that car. But saying, dressing it up as that was God's will for my life is really, really unhelpful. Um, so just be wary of that, because actually we're told in the New Testament we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. Um, and so we want to be obedient to that command. And perhaps the most common one um, that I've come across um, is peace. And that is very complex. Absolutely, don't mishear us. Um, we should be pursuing peace. We're commanded um, to, to pursue peace. Um, we know that it is a gift from God, like Corey was talking about yesterday, and that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we, if you read the wider context of 1 Corinthians 10, we're told not to sin against our conscience, and that's really important. However, um, we do need to be aware that our consciences are also like, tainted by sin, and sometimes dulled. our hearts are deceitful above all things. And therefore, it is possible to feel peace about decisions that are not good. So our Minister Paul has this very silly example, but also tragically sad example because it's real, of a friend at uni who um, was debating with himself whether to get involved in a drinking challenge where I think it was like, you know, 10 pints in an hour or that kind of vibe. And he was debating, should I do this, should I not? Is this a Christian thing to do, is this not? He did it. Afterwards, he said... I knew I did the right thing because I felt an overwhelming sense of peace. To which you have to respond, you were blind drunk. So of course you felt peace. Very silly and yet tragically sad because it's, you can see how it can be done. And John Piper perhaps um, adds in love and this, which I think is really, really helpful. Um, sometimes our lack of peace or combat decision isn't actually about the decision, it's about the cost. Um, there is a real difference between a lack of peace over sinning and a lack of peace over the fact that actually it's going to cost, it's going to be real suffering. Um, Jesus in Gethsemane felt the real weight of that, but he knew it was God's will and he was submitting to God's will. Um, so it's just something to just think about and think really wisely about. But we want you guys to come up with um, some questions in your little groups. We thought it would be helpful to look at maybe two of the big areas that might have come up on your when we first got you to write down your decisions that you're making. Um, two that I suspect have come up most in the room are kind of work, career, jobs, internships, they're like, what next? And then they're like, relationships, should I date them? Should I break up with them? Should I marry them? And what we would love you to do is, thinking about this toolkit, what are some of the questions you could ask yourselves or you could ask your mate who's sitting next to you to help them think, how do I do this for the glory of God? How do I follow God's will in my life in these areas? Does that make sense? 
come up with a few questions and we might pool some wisdom so that we've got some questions that we can actually go away with and think, yeah, we can ask ourselves these when we're making choices. Um, we'll give you five minutes. <laughs>